welcome to the Waterways World podcast. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine, and with me for this episode is the Chief Executive of the Canal and River Trust, Richard Parry. The charity administers the majority of navigable waterways in England and Wales, and Richard has been at its helm since 2013, around a year after it was founded. Prior to taking on the role, he spent 19 years as a senior executive of London Underground, followed by a short stint as a director of the first group rail operator. During our conversation, recorded in mid-January, we discussed the trust achievements and setbacks to date, how both the ongoing COVID-19 crisis and climate change are posing new challenges to the way it works, and Richard's vision for its future. So, let's take a listen. So back in 2013, how did you become aware that the Canal and River Trust was looking for a new chief executive? I don't really remember, Bobby, to be honest. I may have been approached by a search agency. Certainly there was one of the, the big recruitment agencies was running the process. I can't remember whether they approached me or I put myself forward through some other route. I was certainly at a phase in my career when I was looking, so it's quite possible that I would have seen the ad somewhere. But, um, but yes, I, I sort of fell into the process somehow. And uh, although I, I guess when they were looking for um, uh, yeah, the right choice of the chief executive, they must have been looking at people with a range of different uh, experiences, some maybe from the charity sector, uh, some maybe from waterways itself. I guess my experience in running major transport networks, particularly very old networks like the underground with you know some similarities with the canals albeit yeah. they're generally uh, you know generally about 50 to 100 years younger and uh, <laughs> uh, as i often say the challenge at the underground was keeping the water out rather than keeping the water in but i guess you could argue there's a, mm-hmm. a similar a similar process at work um so I, I guess that my experience fitted what tony hells and the the trustees at the time were looking for and how much did you know about the waterways at that time? I knew some. So I, I, one bit of my history that we didn't go, we didn't go over was, was I, my parents had been very keen hire boaters. So they'd never owned a boat. But I had done from the ages of, of about, I guess, seven or eight through to sort of 12 or 13, we'd done um, half a dozen different canal holidays. So um, I'd sort of had that experience and I'd all remembered it very in, in, that, in that way you often do as children, I've remembered it very clearly and, uh, and, and very favourably. And because I'd moved into the sort of West Midlands area during the time I'd been working at the underground, um, about 2007, one of the things that I discovered as I had explored the, the local area was the canal network as somewhere to go out and take a walk. So um, I sort of started to explore and discover the, the canals around central Birmingham, the canals around sort of Solihull and Warwickshire. And so when the job came up, there was for me a very kind of clear connection with, oh, I know I've really enjoyed my time um, exploring and discovering the canals. And I, I'd sort of, I suppose, without maybe even realising it, identified the potential that they had to have that, connection with communities etc maybe 
Uh, I'm probably sort of post-justifying some of this, Bobby, but if you think back to maybe some of the things I had done with the underground and the work we've done there to try and promote that greater involvement with um, customers and local communities, and I'd probably unconsciously almost been thinking some of the same things as I'd explored the canal. So when this exciting opportunity to join the trust came up, I guess all of that sort of suddenly flooded to the front of my mind and I was excited by the possibilities of what the opportunity at the Trust would offer. One of the things I noticed shortly after you took on the role was how quickly you spoke with authority about waterways right around the system, including some of the more obscure routes. Did you have to sit and memorise maps and place names? Because I assume that there was a certain amount of research that went into the role. Very kind of you to, to, to put it like that. I'm... I don't think I did any sort of what you would call really dedicated studying. Um, I knew a certain amount already from the things I'd done either as a child or the things I'd done um, when I'd moved up into the West Midlands and, and sort of explored a little. And I guess I'd always have quite a quick eye for... Uh, you know, networks and facts, I suppose, you know, having to memorise all of those sort of uh, London Underground stations, etc., you know, gave me a certain sort of aptitude for absorbing geography, maybe something like that. Mm. So I never felt that I'd gone to any great special effort. I I, I think um, I would say, Bobby, that I was always genuinely excited and interested and curious. Mm. And I think those things make a big difference so whenever I'd gone to see things and meet people and I'd made an effort from the outset to accept every invitation that I could conceivably fit into my diary and indeed you know go to the trouble of turning up at places even if I hadn't necessarily been invited because people were almost always keen to see you and pleased you'd made the effort to go and I think I just got very quickly onto a learning curve where you discover things and that sets off questions about other things and you go and learn about those and you talk to people who are always, as you will have discovered in Waterways, so generous with their time and so pleased that you're interested in their knowledge. And some amazing people with such long histories in the Waterways were always so willing to just give, you know, a little bit of their great experience to, to, to you and I suppose being the chief executive meant that people were particularly pleased I suppose that I was taking an interest and that made them perhaps even more generous with their time than they might have been and, and that sort of virtuous circle just helped me enormously so I, I suppose mm. I pay tribute to all those who had given me that uh, that opportunity to learn from them both inside the trust because of course the trust is a as an amazingly sort of broad organisation with so much experience and yes, expertise within it, but particularly out on the towpath and at the various festivals, events that people um, would, would, would generously spend time talking to me at. When you were given the role, uh, and you might have already touched on this, but can you remember any of the first occasions you actually went out onto the waterways? Yeah, I mean, I actually had a hire boat for just a four-day sort of break in the run-up to joining. So I had been on canal boats for day trips and things of that sort 
um, but nothing that had been a proper boating holiday for you know 30 years plus when I joined. In fact, yeah, yeah, probably, no, probably about 30 years. And so I was very keen to um, you know have that experience. So uh, I had a sort of short break on the on the Stratford Canal. Uh, before I joined. And, and then in the first few weeks, I mean, where did I go? I must have been to Stoke Bruin for the event there. Um, in fact, there was a very, a lovely, a lovely tale, particularly sadly having uh, lost David with me and David Blager meeting. And within seconds of being introduced to one another, we were both live on BBC Radio Northampton commentating <laughs> on the fly past of the World War II aircraft that were doing a special sort of fly past for the Village at War event. So, I mean, yeah. that's uh, you know, what an extraordinary moment to suddenly find yourself with such, as I didn't entirely appreciate at the time, having just met him, such a legendary figure in the waterways oh, as David. Yes. And then and I'm commentating on on uh, wartime aircraft that I literally knew nothing about um, you know, <laughs> live on BBC Radio Northampton. So, so, so I, I, lots of, 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 uh, of events that summer. Um, I mean, it's, it's 2013, so it's it was 2013, so a little while ago now. And, of course, mm. I have been to so many other events since that I can't distinguish all the places I went. I know the other thing I should say is that, um, again, part of my getting to know the people, because it is about the people as well as all of the history and all of the geography, I went out that summer with each of the then waterway managers for a day, and that was invaluable to spend a day oh, wow. just just soaking up, you know, whatever they took me to. So I remember... Um, you know, one of my early visits would have been I'm going up the Shroppy to Chester and uh, uh, going down to the Kennet and Avon, et cetera, et cetera, places that I didn't know as well as, as the places near where I lived. But uh, again, people always being willing, whether whether part of the, the trust team or others involved in waterways, to make the effort to, to take you out and show you things. So, yeah. Do you think you've become more of an enthusiast than you would have perhaps anticipated 20 years ago or so? Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I hesitate slightly, partly because I know how many enthusiasts there are and how I would fail to measure up to them on any measure of enthusiasm and how selflessly people have given to all the numerous causes involved in the waterways. And, and you know, I'm doing a fairly highly paid job, so it would be uh, almost insulting, I think, to make a comparison but I have I have genuinely loved doing the job and loved spending time discovering things and hearing people's stories and uh, all the all the experiences I've been lucky enough to have. So, in my own sort of modest way, I guess I would say I am an enthusiast, and I think it's important in in any sphere of work, but particularly I think in this job, to have that enthusiasm for it. I think it it makes such a difference to. You know, your 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 ability to do the role. Um, I, I don't know how easy it would be to do the role with all the factors and all the different issues one is dealing with without having a real enthusiasm for it. And I, and it, it is the waterways and everything about them, the history and the nature and the connection with people. But it's also the trust as an entity. I mean, I'm enormously passionate about what was created in 2012 and the vision that was had by those before me in government and in British waterways and the supporters of the uh, of the major sort of transfer into the third sector that they created this this concept that I think is such a an amazing thing to have done and I'm very enthusiastic about the trust as an organization and uh, as a charity and the things that the trust can do 
as the custodian of these amazing waterways. What do you think Robin Evans and Tony Hales and the various other people involved were hoping to achieve by taking the administration of the waterways from a government body to a charity? I know you weren't involved in that process, but what do you think the ambitions were and have they been achieved? I, 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 I th- so I think, as you've said, I wasn't involved. And, and, and in a sense, um, it would be presumptuous of me to speak for uh, Tony, Robin and, and, and the others involved. But of course, I've spoken to them. Tony was the chair of, of the trust for the first two, uh, two plus years of my time here. So I got to know Tony very well. Um, and I, I, I think he was very much driven by need. Uh, I think those involved in the waterways could see that the way government funding was being reduced, the way it was being uh, sort of changed constantly, you know, stories of in-year funding cuts um, and all the complications that created and all the sort of politics around that. And I think the recognition that the trust would be would be free of that because you know, we could explore the wider potential from all the enthusiasm there are for waterways, you know, creating that sort of broad support, volunteers, uh, friends, um, all the other opportunities that there are available to a charity uh, outside of government. And that very much at the heart of the model that was in people's mind. So driven out of a, of a need to say all this in-year change is making it very hard to, to manage the waterways effectively. Mm. Amazing to have got the commitment to a 15-year funding agreement and a huge credit to people uh, on both sides, particularly in a way the government side, to, to have the vision to make that long-term commitment and recognising that underpinned by that. And the negotiations, I think, were pretty tough, you know, listening to... You know, Tony's experiences of it and, and others involved, you know, it took a while to, to really make sure that the trust was created with the resources it would need to be able to do the job and to have a long-term sustainable future. Um, but I think equipped with that, to then have the foundations to build on in unlocking all the potential with these literally millions of people living alongside waterways, benefiting from them. Yes, of course, the the 30,000 plus boat license holders, but going beyond that to all the other tens, hundreds of thousands of people who have a personal connection with waterways and the opportunity to involve them and to make them part of something that in a way is almost paradoxical, owned by government in the public sector. People don't necessarily feel a connection with it. Create a charity, give people the opportunity to be involved all that potential can then be uh, can be tapped into and can help us take things forward. So, um, yeah, the vision of the trust, I think, has been, I think it has been a success. I'd be the first to admit there's an awful lot more to do. You know, even though we're not far off our 10-year anniversary, um, it's still too early to, to pass judgment really about how successful it's been. But I think the first, you know, eight and a half years or so, have certainly exceeded expectations and, and in a way confounded some of those who may have felt that it wouldn't get this far. And I think we've seen our income grow. I think we have seen on most measures our performance in managing the waterways improve and certainly more people getting involved. And they are all really, really important factors to make the trust successful up to now and, and to build on that success for the future. What do you think the biggest success to date is? 
yours or the I suppose the, the, the trust itself? Goodness me, that's a question. <laughs> well, I'll just say um, while you mull that over, I mean, I've, I, one of the things I've always been very impressed, and I'm happy to go on on record as saying this, and I know other people feel the same, is the harnessing of volunteer support has been fantastic and, and surprising actually I don't I you know I wasn't aware that people would give so much to the to the trust I think that's a I think that's a really good um choice Bobby I should have just gone straight for that myself shouldn't I um I, I think that's definitely one of our big success stories I agree um to I mean of course I should acknowledge immediately that volunteering has always been a big part of the restoration and renaissance of the waterways of course going back well before the trust was created or indeed conceived of so you know all those you know great stories in the in the 50s and early 60s of the amazing work that volunteers did to win the argument to restore the waterways that we have today um and so you know we didn't invent volunteering goodness me no but what we did do, I think, was to was to sort of broaden it out, and, and rather than it just be about those, you know, kind of almost sort of uh, climb the mountain together projects to, to recover and restore a bit of waterway. It was saying actually, let's make it more just a part of how we run the organisation. Let's make lock keepers and towpath task forces and local cleanup groups. Let's build them into the way that we take care of the place. Um, and put a friendlier face on the organisation because, of course, volunteers will very often be the people that uh, the the members of the public, customers will come into contact with um, and give us more ability to to, to outreach our education volunteers and and the numerous others who are involved in, in sort of communicating about the waterways and encouraging people of all ages to get involved. So, yeah, I think the volunteering has been a big success. I, I do think... In a, in, a, in a sort of slightly more kind of commercial vein, our, our growth of our income, our diversification of our income has been a big part of the success as well. Um, you know, it was by no means a given that the trust would make the progress that we have, which is, of course, vital to fund our work. I think our, mm. our sort of our identity has been a big success as well. I think we have moved the trust forward very considerably from where we started in 2012 and established our credentials as a charity with a, a voice, with uh, a national profile, our connection with health and well-being, um, and the really important contributions we can make to people's lives. I think we've been able to sort of establish that very clearly as part of, of what we are. And certainly we see people's awareness of you know, the benefits of you know, being by water, being in the outdoors, clearly the experience of the last year with people discovering their local canals during lockdown has considerably uh, built upon that but I think all of that is part of our success in establishing ourselves um, alongside that uh, much wider sort of social change and we've been able to demonstrate and, and, and actively be part of that.
previously mentioned well-being, and, and it was back in 2018 that the Trust launched its new well-being initiative, along with the new logo. And it's fair to say that at the time, neither of those things were particularly well-received. Do you think those critics are more open to those changes now? That's a very... Uh, <laughs> I can tell by the way you're asking that question, Bobby, that you, 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 you know you're making a bit of mischief with that. <laughs> um, I, I don't regret at all making the change. I think it was really important for us to mod, to move our, our branding forward, to broaden it, to connect with something that I think our original 2012 positioning wouldn't have been able to do. Um, and that's partly... Uh, our ability to be on digital media um, and the, the the greater sort of vibrancy that the brand gives us and and standing for the the, the, the I don't think it's a change I just think it's an, an emphasis on the benefits that being by water gives to people and I think there were some as you know numerous people who were very skeptical about that some who felt that you know, any sort of brand change, rebranding exercise was was wasteful. Um, and I think we were able to show many of those people, I know there will be some who still would remain sceptical, but I think many people would see how the organisation has moved on from there, how our profile has grown, and I think has shifted in a positive direction, um, that they recognise that, you know, that change, you know, Maybe they have a slightly different view about it. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure many people listen to this. Get, we don't get as many letters, so. Well, I, I, <laughs> you know that. I, I would certainly. I mean, this. I, I can't claim this is a conversation I have a lot, Bobby. And I think that's in a way itself a sign of of change. I mean, there are lots of people involved in rebranding would say when you're making a change at the time, a lot of your kind of co- your core existing customers. Are, are uncomfortable with it because they're familiar with what you had before. You're, you're making the change in order to broaden your appeal and to connect with with others, and, and that's not no different from us than it has been from you know, numerous other rebrands. Um, and I think some of the people who who have spoken to me since have, as I say, acknowledged that actually taking a, a longer term view now that the moment has passed and they look back and see what was done, you know, they, they are more sanguine about it. Um, and I think it was really important for us to have an identity that we were able to leverage to connect with, you know, a wider audience, a younger audience, you know, maybe even a more diverse audience, and to, you know, to, to demonstrate that the Canal River Trust is an organisation that is reaching into uh, communities in a different way from I think we would have done with a more traditional brand that we, that we had before. So do you think that initiative has been successful? Again, it's it's you know it needs longer to be able to say that with absolute conviction, but I certainly think we've made a lot of progress in raising awareness, in connecting with a wider audience, um, in as I said, aligning ourselves with that very important health and well-being agenda. And I think all those things have been strengthened by the rebranding. I I'm not going to pretend before again people are. are uh, you know, yelling at their uh, their podcast playing device. Um, the, the, you know, the waterways haven't changed. The fundamentals of the experience of being by water, uh, 
they are constant through this. So, so yes, we didn't invent that with the rebrand. I think we were able to shift and leverage and expand and amplify you know, the sort of things that many people who've been boating since the 1960s themselves experience. And I think our change has been able to make it easier for us to communicate that. So I think it has achieved what we wanted. It has a lot more to do in the long term. But I think we're certainly satisfied that we made the right call in making the change when we did. Very good. Do you have any regrets or feel you would have done things differently while at the trust? <laughs> this is the sort of interview, the sort of interview one would have when I'm leaving, Bobby. I'm not going yet. Um, so, uh, so, so I've got I've got plenty more time to 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 to, to, to do things that I might regret. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, of course, there's you know, I'm someone who is quite reflective. Um, I will sort of play back things that I've done and 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 sort of weigh weigh them up and think about whether I could have done them differently. So yeah, sure, there's going to be lots of that. I think it's part of learning is to be reflective and to you know not to almost sort of amnesia and blank out the things that didn't go well. It is to reflect on them and to try to learn from them. I mean, there's lots of sort of uh, psychology that says, you know, when you fail, that's when you've got the greatest learning opportunity. So I guess I I believe in that up to a point. Um, So, yeah, I'm not going to think of one sort of spectacular thing that I personally have done that I would be cringing about. But I I know there'll be lots of, of things that I would reflect on. During your time at the Trust, you must have had a bad day. I'm just interested to know what a particularly bad day would look like for you. Well, I guess the one thing I'm not going to sort of steer around and I should acknowledge was the Toddbrook Reservoir incident. So on the sort of the, 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 the big scale, on the sort of the macro scale, rather than anything about me personally, that's, that, that's clearly been the worst day for the organisation uh, since... The trust was created because, um, you know, anything, an incident on that scale is is going to clearly be a very uncomfortable one, and that's a very understated word to use uh, for all involved. Um, and we had a very anxious forty eight hours or so whilst we got to grips with the situation, drew down the water in the reservoir, and then started the the very long process of. Uh, ensuring the reservoir was safe and we obviously got to a point where it was safe within a week and people could return home but that was really just the start and there's been a regime in place at Toddbrook ever since to you know manage it very 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 carefully very actively we have pumps on site to keep the water levels down and are doing a lot of work we've done a lot of temporary work and we're now moving to the permanent design changes so that we can re uh, restore the reservoir to its its use again um and and obviously there's been an awful lot of uh, commentary around Toddbrook. there's been the independent reports that have been published and uh yes that was a very uncomfortable time for all of us in the organization as we contemplated what had gone wrong at Toddbrook. um part of that is linked to the challenge that the waterways face with climate change. And I've talked a bit about that in other places, about you know, the scale of the challenge that we face in managing this very old infrastructure, you know, most of it going back to you know the early 19th or late 18th century, 240, 250 years old, not built to any design. And so you know the extreme weather that we seem to be increasingly subject to 
very, very dry for long periods and very sort of sudden storms indeed as we speak. Uh, I'm uh, yes. I'm with my fingers crossed because you have some very um, serious weather coming in in the next uh, 36 hours or so. Um, Storm Christoph, isn't it? Storm Christoph, and you know we've had people yeah. mobilised. You know, it's one of the one of the slightly invisible things. I will just d- d- just go off at a slight tangent, Bobby. I mean, I've got people who've been up very early this morning making things safe. Who will be up again tonight? Um, so perhaps people don't always see how much work is done. Um, you know, in the background. This is, this is- this is in response to the uh, the the coming storm, the in, gathering storm. The gathering storm, exactly. Just making sure that everything yeah. we can control, we are on top of and are anticipating. Clearly, when the weather comes, it comes big time these days, and our ability mm. to deal with that is is clearly very limited. Um, but our infrastructure, we know, is always going to be susceptible. It's it's. It, there's the, the, there's some you know, there's not an awful lot you can do to, to to change the way that embankments were built that are 240 years old, but we know we have a an absolutely uh, important responsibility to keep them safe, and that's why we inspect so regularly. That's why we have um, such an active management program, and why we do all the repairs that we do. And so um, that's something that uh, I guess Todd Brook coming back to that very firmly reminded us of the need to be vigilant in our care of all this very old infrastructure. But the challenge for us going forward is going to be how much that is going to cost us. And uh, I've been making pleas to government throughout this year about what extra investment we think this waterway network that's at the centre of our national life in many ways, you know, the millions of people who are involved in it in some way, the tens of thousands of jobs that uh, depend upon it, the local economies, all that uh, benefit that people gain from it, and actually how important it is that we spend the money on it, that uh, we are seeing climate change increasingly needing us to spend. Um, So we are upping our spend. We have been doing that steadily. But there's a very big ask, I think, for the next decade or so as we seek to make this infrastructure as resilient as it can be, despite its great age. We're in the midst of a second lockdown. Can you kind of give us an overview of what's, what's actually happening out there in the network at the minute? Well, we, we of course, have, have done this before. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess it's a, a sad reflection on how long this crisis has been going on, that we have got quite good at managing what we need to do in the controlled, limited, restricted ways that we have to work. Um, so we obviously are continuing to respond to incidents, to do our inspections, to undertake our maintenance. And, and actually what's different from the spring and autumn lockdowns is we are continuing with our winter works. Uh, construction work, as you know, has been given uh, consent by government to continue. And we're very anxious to get the full winter work programme delivered because we know how important it will be to have the waterways um, in as good a condition as we can uh, as we can manage for the summer. So, so there's actually a fair amount of work going on. It's, I just want to pay tribute to all those involved in doing it. Um, we've got obviously a lot of colleagues working at home and they're going through their own challenges. But 
the guys who are out um, doing the work to keep the network safe and to do the repair work, I'm you know full of um, uh, appreciation for that because you know they, they of course are like all of us conscious of um, the situation and, and and the infectious virus that that is that is out there. Um, but we've got very good protocols. We've undertaken all the risk assessments, as I say, because we've effectively been doing this for 10 months now. We uh, we understand how to do things in a, a COVID secure, to use that expression, uh, sure. way. So, so yes, yeah, so we, we carry on as best we can. Obviously, boating is uh, currently very restricted to just the very essential trips to uh, facilities and services, etc., um, but towpaths stay open. Um, that's you know really important for people to be able to uh, use them in residential areas where very often it's it's one of the few green spaces that is accessible to people. Um, and we've had obviously some uh, concern in some places about that, ra- rather less now than we had back in April. I think it's fair to say. Uh, that may partly reflect the time of year, but I think there is a, a recognition that actually it's a really important uh, benefit for people, indeed a lifeline, you might even say, for some people to have access to the towpath. Um, and, of course, it's something for the trust to try to continue as we come out, let's hope, of this lockdown later this year, is to encourage those people who have used the towpath to continue their involvement with their local canal and to hopefully encourage some of those people to recognise the role the trust is playing and to give us their support, either volunteering or advocacy even, just to sort of talk about the canal and to promote it to, to friends. And, and when we get to the key decisions that need to be made in the future about our funding, we want people to be standing alongside us promoting our cause and making our case for why it's so important we continue with a level of funding that keeps the canals in the condition that people want to see. How badly has canal maintenance been affected by the last lockdown? Um, Because we have had quite a lot of letters complaining about, you know, overgrown bank sides, lack of dredging, uh, particularly in relation to the Rochdale Canal, but, you know, plenty more as well. Mm. Well, just to recap, we, we had to suspend uh, a lot of our work in that period, April, May, June. Yeah. I, and then when lockdown lifted, you, you, you had a backlog. We did. I mean, we effectively lost a quarter's worth of work. Um, and, of course, we suspended all our volunteering as well for that period. So that, of course, would, would make quite a significant dif- difference, particularly on the more visible things, let's say. Um, volunteers contribute in lots of ways, but one of the things they particularly do is make a difference to the things that are you know, less about the structure and more about the presentation, if, 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 you, if you could call it that. Um, and and so yes, that would undoubtedly have an effect. Um, and and so there has been you know some catching up to do, but there has certainly been um, greater. I mean, what we've had for example, we've had more sort of lock failures uh, in the summer than we would have had perhaps in a normal year. 
uh, some of that actually may reflect the the sort of the a range of factors though Bob because some of it would be that we didn't do all the maintenance that we would have normally done some of it might again be that that extreme weather effect now we had a, such a dry spring if you remember it hardly rained at all in April and May so very long periods where those structures would not have been being used would have been being baked dry and then we had some quite spectacular storms coming out of that as we are headed into the summer to suddenly exposed to very intense rainfall and we think that was, you know, also a factor in causing some of the the failures that we saw. And I, I'm not making excuses. I can't obviously justify, you know, explain that completely, um, evidence that should should I say. But but we just think it was another part of the of the equation. Um, so yes, you know, we, we obviously do our best. We with such an old network, with um, you know, whilst we spend more money on it than you know we would have been spending in in previous decades. You know, there's no doubt that we could spend a lot more if we had it because things like dredging always, you know, stretch our resources to do all of the work one would like to do and we have to prioritise. Um, so, yes, there, there will always, I think, be people who find things that actually they aren't quite as, as good as they would ideally want them to be. And, and part of our message to people is to, is to, I guess, give us a little bit of consideration for the fact that it is a very old network. It does take uh, a considerable amount of care and maintenance um, and that's been that has certainly been affected this year it's also worth quickly saying that of course just one of the quick recap the Rochdale was one of the canals that very much suffered from all of that flooding that we had in February 2020 so before we even got into the pandemic we already had very significant uh, impact from all of that so we had failures mm. of culverts on the Rochdale we had uh, the figure of three locks on the Cauldron Hebble completely smashed up and a whole lot of other damage, including um, a lot of sort of silt coming into the canals. That's one of the other factors. Even if we get off relatively lightly in flooding with some of the structures, you know, you know, we don't always have damage to structures. We can often you know, see the water sort of sweep over the locks and, and when it's uh, gone back down to normal levels, everything's okay. But, of course, what will always almost, almost always happen is that a lot of the silt gets deposited into canals. So even if it was dredged a year before, it's suddenly a problem because a lot of silt has been dumped into it as the flood water has, has come in. So that's, that's taken a lot of effort this year as well to dredge some of those sections on the Huddersfield and the Rochdale and the Cauldron Hebble that had all of that flooding. So that's completely out with anything to do with the impact of the, of the virus and uh, you know I fear that with the storms that are coming our way we may get some more of that in the next uh, day or so. Do you feel that climate change is the biggest threat facing the waterways? I think if you look over the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years or so I think it has to be Bobby I mean I think it's almost true for us as a society isn't it? So um, there, are, there are clearly lots of short-term things I mean the virus you know let's hope it's short-term at least is, is obviously a, a spectacular devastating dreadful example of that but when you look sort of 20 30 years out it's hard to imagine that anything will be affecting us as much as the change in the climate just the effect it will have on water supply i mean our water supply is already um, a challenge in places again you know it's a, a, a podcast on its own i am sure but um you know we, we have so many different arrangements that are already susceptible to you know if we don't get rainfall reservoirs drop the groundwater drops we can't abstract from some of the rivers that we would normally abstract from so you know actually 
that can really uh, hurt us. But of course, it's the impact of the extreme weather on all those historic structures, not built to modern standards, as I've talked about, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, climate change in the long term is a huge challenge for us, as it is for many other infrastructure owners and indeed for society as a whole. Um, but you know, it's going to need more money. I've made that point already. But it obviously needs for us to have the sort of long term plans in place and to be able to uh, create that focus for the long term. And that's one of the great things about the trust having the sort of grant agreement that we've got. Uh, that gives us the ability to plan forward with some security uh, that we can deliver the work that is our priority work for the future. So um, we will continue to use the resources that we've got to spend it as effectively as possible on mitigating the impact of climate change. But I think uh, if you look to the long term, that's going to be an ever growing challenge for us. And I suspect for my you know, my successors, as, as, as they take things forward for the long term after me. Staying on that theme, we now have the government's 2050 zero carbon commitment, which is obviously going to have a big impact on the waterways industry. What is the Trust doing to help achieve a sustainable future? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously linked to to the climate change point as well. We think we are able to play a very active role in mitigating climate change in lots of ways. Part of it is um, creating local opportunities for people so people can connect with nature, go out into the outdoors without needing to travel long distances. That's a very... Uh, Richard, sorry, I, I was more thinking of the zero carbon element, the sustainable boating, yeah. you know, electric boats and, and so forth. Okay, sorry, yes, coming down to that. I'll just say one other thing, but before I come to that, we can also contribute, we can contribute in terms of energy. And one of the uh, things that I think is a great opportunity for the Trust to contribute is around using our water to uh, support energy supply. So we do some hydro schemes now. With government support, we could deliver more. Uh, we have the heat pump opportunity. So people talk a lot more about um, heat pumps. Actually, water-sourced heat pumps are much more effective than air-sourced heat pumps because without getting too technical, the differential temperature in the water versus the air means the water is always cooler in the summer and always warmer in the winter. So you can use that differential to support energy uh, supply. So we think that, that tapping into that will give the waterways a very important role in reducing um, the carbon footprint of our villages, towns, cities, and their energy use. So that's mm. sort of something to, 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 that we're we're very uh, determined and very keen to promote. But you're right. There's the use then of the waterways themselves, and we are seeing more interest from government in the uh, propulsion of boats and the uh, just general sort of heating and use of uh, fossil fuels on boats, etc. And I think we have got to find a path from where we are now in 2021 to the future, to 2050, and imagine the transition that we need to make so that by that date, we have got, uh, if not 100%, we have certainly got much more electric propulsion boats. We may be obliged ultimately to completely switch to electric propulsion. And like a lot of these sort of step changes in technology, you know, it's not obvious how we do it. We've done some 
projects to provide um, sort of eco moorings, if I can call them that, where you, know, you have an electric su- supply um, at a bollard that you can moor up against. We've just completed or are about to complete a project in Islington and extending into Camden with support from those London boroughs and from DEFRA to create moorings there where people don't need to run their engines, don't need to use fossil fuels. Um, but of course, if you're going to convert your boat to entirely electric propulsion and electric supply, you need the assurance that you have that sort of supply in lots of places. Um, and how you move from having them in a few places to having them wherever people would need them is going to be a, a big stretch. I don't think the trust can um, sort of forward fund that sort of infrastructure on top of all the other asks and challenges we have with our funding and the you know the physical structures that we're already having to spend all that money on but we need to find a route from here to that future that enables people to make that change so we're involved in discussions with defra with other navigation authorities um, and they i'm sure will pick up pace Uh, this is an important year of course with cop 26 in december We want to be very much part of the whole sustainability agenda for uh, the country. And this is undoubtedly something that will require more thought and more effort and more commitment over time. Richard, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy chap. Thank you, Bobby. It's been great to talk to you. And hopefully people will get uh, some useful information from listening to this podcast. I'm sure they will. Thanks, Richard. Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest Waterways news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways life, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert advice section and our boat search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com.